Today I continue a series of messages on the history of the church, particularly Protestant history. Today's message forms in some ways the focal point of the entire thing. Uh, today's message is really what it's all about. Uh, it, go, it goes down to the deepest, most fundamental, important question of life. It was that question the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas after that earthquake in Acts. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this opportunity. We have to be in your house on your holy day. We thank you for all that you've done for us. I ask that you bless me, speak through me or in spite of me, to get your message across. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Just a brief review. At the beginning, I shared with you that there were two principles that distinguished early primitive Christianity from every other religion on earth. The one principle was the fundamental equality of all believers. There was no intrinsic hierarchy. Nobody was holier than anyone else. Nobody was above anyone else. They addressed the elder from the Jerusalem council. They addressed the brethren from the Jerusalem council in the book of Acts. From the brethren. From everybody. The second principle was justification by faith. And it was one man in particular who brought this out to the full. And we will tell his story today. Last time we spoke about John Huss in Bohemia in the 1400s, late 1300s. And how he was martyred for preaching against the, the sins of his day. Preaching against the abuses of the hierarchy. When he died, he made a prophecy. He was burned at the Council of Constance in 1415. He said, it is thus that you silence the goose, because his name means goose. But a hundred years hence, there will arise a swan whose singing you shall not be able to silence. When his friend Jerome was brought to the stake, he had first recanted partially, but then he turned back and said, no, I'm going to stand for this thing until the bitter end. And when they tied him to the stake, he gave his famous reply, come bold, boldly forward and apply the fire before my face. If I was afraid, I would not be here. And that is how he died. 102 years later, brings us to 1517. A little town in Germany, Schweinitz. Two German noblemen are discussing a dream that one of them had. Duke Frederick, the elector. Now that's a name you're going to have to, you should remember. Duke Frederick, speaking to his brother John. Duke Frederick had just had a dream the evening of October 30, 1517. Brother, I must tell you a dream which I had last night and the meaning of which I would much like to know. For I dreamed it thrice and each time with new circumstances. 
Well, don't be uneasy at it. Be so good as to tell it to me. Having got to bed last night, fatigued and out of spirits, I continued awake till midnight, all sorts of thoughts passing through my mind. Among other things, I thought how I was to observe the Feast of All Saints. I prayed for the poor souls in purgatory and supplicated God to guide me, my counsels, and my people according to truth. I again fell asleep and then dreamed that Almighty God sent me a monk who was a true son of the Apostle Paul. All the saints accompanied him by order of God in order to bear testimony before me and to declare that he did not come to contrive any plot, but that all that he did was according to the will of God. They asked me to have the goodness graciously to permit him to write something on the door of the church of the castle at Wittenberg. This I granted through my chancellor. Thereupon the monk went to the church and began to write in such large characters that I could read the writing at Schweinitz. The pen which he used was so large that its end reached as far as Rome, where it pierced the ears of a lion that was couching there and caused the triple crown upon his head of the Pope to shake. All the cardinals and princes running hastily up tried to prevent it from falling. You and I, brother, wished also to assist, and I stretched out my arm, but at this moment I awoke with my arm in the air, quite amazed and very much enraged at the monk for not managing his pen better. I again fell asleep and once more closed my eyes. The dream returned. The lion, still annoyed by the pen, began to roar with all his might so much so that the whole city of Rome and all the states of the Holy Empire ran to see what the matter was. The Pope requested them to oppose this monk and applied particularly to me on account of his being in my country. Then I dreamed that all the princes of the empire and we among them hastened to Rome and strove one after another to break the pen. But the more we tried, the stiffer it became, sounding as if it had been made of iron. We at length desisted. I then asked the monk where he got his pen and why it was so strong. The pen, replied he, belonged to an old goose of Bohemia, 100 years old. I got it from one of my old schoolmasters. As to its strength, it is owing to the impossibility of depriving it of its pith or marrow, and I am quite astonished at it myself. Suddenly I heard a loud voice, and a large number of other pens had sprung up out of the long pen of the monk. I awoke a third time, and it was daylight. This was the dream Duke Frederick the Elector recounted to his brother the morning of October 31, 1517. A child was born November 10, 1840, 1483, in a little town in Germany, Martin Luther, to parents John Luther and forgot his mother's name. His father, John, was a miner. They were poor, but he was a man of principle and integrity, sterling uh, character stood true to principle no matter what the consequences might be. They were a little hard on their boy, but even little Martin, when he grew up, he saw more in their discipline to approve than to condemn. 
He was early sent off to school where he was so poor that he had to beg by singing from door to door so that he wouldn't starve, although he suffered much from hunger. He was also a guitar player. just want to throw that out there. Well, he played the lute, which is a kind of guitar. Young Martin was scared of a god he thought was a tyrant, a cruel judge looking for any excuse to condemn him and demanding payment for the sins of his life. By the age of 18, Martin went off to the University of Erfurt. He was not in such great poverty as before. But he had an insatiable appetite for knowledge, and he loved Aristotle, theologians like Aquinas. One day in the library of the university, looking through the books, he chanced upon an old book written in Latin, which was a Bible, Jerome's translation of the Bible. He had thought that the entire Bible consisted in a few verses here and there that were quoted and spoken at uh, various religious ceremonies. But here he discovered that it was actually a big book. And he read the story of Samuel, the child of promise. The story in the Old Testament. And he prayed, would God that he would give me a book like this for myself. However, an unhappy side effect sprung up out of this. And that's too bad because people, a lot of days, a lot of people nowadays are short-sighted. You see what happened to Martin Luther is he began to be seriously convicted about his own condition as a lost sinner. And many people, they read the Bible, they, they, a verse is, is given to them and they hear it and that conviction comes on, and you know it's not pleasant. It doesn't feel good. And so they perceive it as bad news, and they blame the messenger, as it were. The Bible brought this harm upon me. And really, the Bible was bringing something to your awareness you didn't know before, and you were just blissfully unaware. But Martin Luther's conviction grew, and it became so bad that upon one occasion he returned from his parents' house back to Erfurt at the university. He encountered a lightning storm where supposedly a lightning bolt struck at his feet. And some accounts say it threw him down. You know, we live in Florida. How, how many of you have ha had lightning strike very nearby? Everybody. Anyone's living here? I, I saw one about 100 yards away from me. Oh, more like a hundred, couple hundred feet when I lived at Alumni Village. And it, it doesn't sound anything like, it sounds very unique when it's up close. It's, it's, it sounded like an explosion and it knocked me back. Young Martin was so scared of this lightning. It brought his own mortality to his view that he promised God, if you would spare me, I will devote my life to your service. And sure enough, the clouds dispersed. The sunshine came out. And he was a man of his word. He said, I'm going to come through with this thing. And I'm going to devote my life to his service. Sadly, to him, that meant he had to seclude himself from the whole world. 
and enter a monastery and live a holy life separated from sinners like us, I guess. He had by this time been recognized as a doctor of philosophy. He had a bright, promising future in front of him. When his friends and teachers learned that he had done this foolish thing, they thought it was a national loss. And they came out for two days outside the monastery, begging to talk with him and get him back to his senses. But he would not speak to them. Martin thought that he had entered a city of refuge. If you read about that in the Bible, the city where you can go and you'll be safe. And that he would be safe from his conviction and that he would be free from his torments, the torments of his conscience. In time, he realized that it was far from the case. Not having escaped his troubles, they were now locked in with him. He was obliged to perform the lowliest drudgery, cleaning the cells, cleaning the chapel. He was obliged to go out begging. And where before he passed through the streets as a somebody, now he was a, a nobody, a beggar, begging again for food. And he found a Bible in the convent in the monastery. It was chained up to a wall, and he thought, great. And he read it. And the more he read it, the more his conviction as a sinner grew. And he was desperate. What do I do? I could fast. I could stay up late studying, refusing to sleep. I could scourge myself. I could hit myself with a whip. His anguish continued. Reading from Wiley, historian. Nay, increased, and his aspect was now enough to have moved to pity his bitterest enemy. Like a shadow, he glided from cell to cell of his monastery, his eyes sunk, his bones protruding, his figure bowed down to the earth, on his brow the shadows of those fierce tempests that were raging in his soul, his tears watering the stony floor, and his bitter cries and deep groans echoing through the long galleries of the convent a mystery and a terror to the other monks. He tried to disburden his soul to his confessor, an aged monk, who had no experience of such a case before. It was beyond his skill. The wound was too deep for him to heal. Save me in thy righteousness. What does that mean? asked Luther. I could see how God can condemn me in his righteousness, but how can he save me in his righteousness? And the old monk couldn't answer that question. On one occasion, Luther had carried his vigils, his fasting, his, his self-denial to such a great extent that his fellow monks found him unconscious on the floor of his cell. He almost died. They nursed him back to health. The vicar general, the leader of the Order of the Augustines, which Luther was a part, visited one day. He was a pious man by the name of John Stelpitz. He saw Martin Luther, and he had a sense of his experience because he had gone through something like it, though not as powerful. Why do you torture yourself with these thoughts? 
Look at the wounds of Christ, said Stapis. Anxious to turn away the monk's eye from his own wounds, his stripes, macerations, fastings, by which he hoped to move God to pity. Look at the blood Christ shed for you, continued his skillful counselor. It is there the grace of God that will appear to you. I cannot and dare not come to God, replied Luther, till I am a better man. I have not yet repented sufficiently. A better man, would the vicar general say in effect. Christ came not to save good men, but sinners. The words of John Stoppitz had an effect to lessen the pain and the desperation of Luther. But he then again fell back into the same despondency and despair. His fellow monks thought that he was possessed of the devil. They, their life consisted in good time, in eating and having fun. They could not understand this young monk, this doctor of the university, who had such struggle of soul. Luther was as if in the presence of a holy God without an intercessor. He thought he had to pay God off. He came with one price after another. It was not enough that he had separated himself from his friends and his worldly prospects. It's not enough that he fasted, that he stayed up all night, that he hid himself. Time after time, it was as if he would come to the gate of heaven with his price. Will you take this? What do you mean it's not enough? He would go back. He would dig up more. He'd hurt himself more. He'd fast more. He would... He grew sick and almost died. An old monk stood behind, beside him on his deathbed, what it seemed, and he repeated the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Luther replied, I, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. No, no, the monk said, it's not enough that you must believe in the forgiveness of David's sins. Or of Peter's sins, you must believe in the forgiveness of your own sins. And that was it. Luther realized that he had the wrong approach all along. He thought that his sins need to be paid for by him. It was the forgiveness, not the payment of sins, that God was after. And his spirits revived and he rose. He was later called to the priesthood, and the elector Frederick himself, looking for professors, bright young men, to fill the chairs of his university, talked to John Stalpitz for suggestions. And he said, Martin is your man. So he called him out, and Martin was appointed professor of uh, philosophy and theology. He was called upon to lecture on the Psalms. He lectured from the epistles, the letters. And one day he had to study the book of Romans because he was going to teach it. And he was reading that first chapter of Romans until he came to the verses that we read for our scripture reading today. Verses 16 and 17. 
And he read that last line which said, The just shall live by faith. And he is struck with this expression as if an angel is speaking to him. The just then has a different life from other men. And this life is given by faith. These words stuck with him for a while. Later on, he was called to visit Rome to mediate in some struggle related to his order. And he went to Rome and he thought, wow, this is going to be like a Mecca. This is the, this is the center of, of, of the Christian world. This, this is where all the wrongs are going to be made right. It's going to be a euphoria of religion. The more he approached Rome on his journey, the more he noticed the quality of uh, people's faith didn't get better. It got worse. In Italy, he visited a, a monastery, a convent, and he talked with the monks there, and he noticed they were wearing this splendidly rich apparel of silk and velvet. They had marble in their building. They had rich uh, furniture, costly paintings. The table was magnificent. And he was troubled because these were people who were supposed to have renounced the world. And Friday came, and they ate meat. And that's a problem. You're not supposed to do that. And he told them, uh, by order of the church and the pope, uh, you shouldn't be doing this. And somebody told him that if he valued his life, he should probably leave. So he left. On the way to Rome, again, he, he was sick. He was brought face to face with his own mortality again. Again, the terrors of his old experience came back. And one more time, the words that he had read in Romans struck at him with particular force. The just shall live by faith. And he got to Rome and he thought, you know, things have been getting worse and worse, but Rome is going to be the best place on earth. And he gets there and he persists for a time in his delusion. I don't know when it was that he realized all was not that he thought. Maybe it was the person on the street who told him, oh, you know, uh, the last pope he fled and was caught in Spain, and he was tried and convicted. He pled guilty, and he asked for a confessor to come to his cell. So a monk came to this pope's cell, and the pope murdered him, took his cloak on him, and ran away. Or maybe it was the time Luther was saying Mass because he was a priest. And you know, when you say Mass, you are literally converting the bread and body and, and blood the bread and the wine, into the body and the blood of Christ. And there were several priests lined up doing this in front of the altars. The people were coming forward. And he did it with all the solemnity and dignity he thought the service required. But before he got through saying one, the priest next door did seven. And he said to Martin, come on, come on, get with it. Send our lady back her son. Meaning the son was in the bread. And you're taking too much time with Jesus, and you should send him back to Mary. And Luther was appalled by this. It didn't help that when he spoke with the, uh, the dignitaries of the church, the higher-ups, they thought he was as cynical and sacrilegious as they were. 
one of them told this story. Hey, this one time I was doing communion, and instead of saying, uh, they say in Latin, you know, this is the bread, this is my body, you know, meaning that the bread is now the body of Christ. He said, instead of saying, this is my body in Latin, I said, bread you are and bread you shall remain. And wine you are and wine you shall remain. And he lifted up the emblems and the people bowed down in worship because they didn't know what he said. Rome was a place where you could see a corpse float down the river and just continue on with your day. Murders and robberies were a nightly occurrence. Cynicism, unbelief, scoffing at sacred things was prevalent through all the classes of clergy and through the common people. Luther himself partook of many of the services that were uh, ceremonies that were required of him. And in particular, there was a certain staircase in one of the churches called Pilate's Staircase, which was reputed to have been the very staircase that Jesus descended upon when he was condemned by Pilate and he went out to be crucified. Does anybody see a potential problem with this? Yeah, yeah, he's in Rome, and Jesus was condemned in Jerusalem, which is something like a thousand miles away or something. But thankfully, the angels carried the whole staircase over to Rome so that Martin and others could earn a year's worth of indulgences, climbing step by step on his knees. And this is what Luther did. Until one last time, the same words thundered to him. The just shall live by faith. It was as if somebody was speaking to his ear. He got up horrified at himself for this foolishness he was partaking in. And he ran away. Back in Germany, he was a, distinguished with the title Doctor of Divinity. He had taken an oath that he would teach nothing but the scriptures. And he had taken an oath that he would preach nothing but righteousness by faith. And in an old chapel 20 feet by 30 feet in the town square in Wittenberg, this old dilapidated chapel that needed to be supported on all sides by props, otherwise it would fall over. And in front of a rude pulpit made of planks, Martin Luther preached the gospel to people who hadn't heard it for centuries. In a time where the preachers dwelt on funny stories and the legends of the church, Luther got up to preach righteousness by faith. Learn to know Christ and him crucified, is what he said. Learn to despair of your own work and cry to him. Lord Jesus, thou art my righteousness and I am thy sin. Thou hast taken on thee what was mine and given to me what was thine. What thou wast not, thou becamest, that I might become what I was not. Sounds like desire of ages to me. If our labors and our afflictions could give us peace and conscience, why should Christ have died? Thou wilt find peace only in him by despairing of thyself and of thy works and learning with what love he opens his arms to thee, takes upon him all thy sins and gives thee all his righteousness. It was as if Paul was reincarnated. The old apostle, he was back. 
preaching the gospel as he had wrote it down in Romans and Hebrews and other places. And while Luther was preaching his message of the free mercy and gift of God by faith, it came to pass in 1517, maybe before, another man, a friar, a Dominican by the name of Tetzel, John Tetzel, stopped in a neighboring town and preached a very different message. The Pope at this time was Leo X. He was a man who loved arts and beauty, and he wanted to leave his stamp on the world. So he decided he would undertake the building of St. Peter's Basilica, which is now in Rome. It dominates the skyline. It's one of the largest churches in the world, magnificent structure. Only he ran out of money. So he undertook, well, he asked himself, well, what do I have? I don't have much money, like material wealth, but I have lots of spiritual wealth for sale. So he decided that he would sell what are called indulgences for money. The official uh, who was given this duty to conduct this sale in Germany was John Tetzel. He was a friar who had rendered many important services to the Pope. However, on an occasion before this, he was convicted of adultery and shameful misconduct. And he was sentenced to be tied up in a sack and thrown into the river. But the Elector Frederick interceded for him, gave him mercy, and he was spared. So this man, who having escaped the judgment due for his sins, began to preach Forgiveness by payment for the sins of others. As he would uh, approach the town, a herald would cry out that the grace of God and of the Holy Father is at your gates. A big red cross would be brought in, above which were the arms of Pope Leo X suspended. Tetzel would point at that cross and he'd say that that cross has as much power to save you as the real cross that Christ died on. Come, I will give you letters under seal by which even the sins which you may have a desire to commit in future will all be forgiven. I would not exchange my privileges for that of St. Peter in heaven, for I have saved more souls by my indulgences than the apostle by his sermons. The indulgence by his reprieve from time that you are going to burn in purgatory. Now, if you're a faithful church member, you're not going to hell. You don't worry about that. But you could still burn in purgatory because you know, crimes need to be punished. Uh, you know, like people go to jail and they go out. You need to go to purgatory for some of your crimes. And so this, in effect, is a forgiveness. Uh, an indulgence is, in effect, a forgiveness. There is no sin too great for an indulgence to remit. And even should anyone have done violence to the Holy Virgin Mary, Mother of God, let him pray, let him pay, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let him pay well, and it will be forgiven him. But more than this, said he, indulgences not only save the living, they also save the dead. Repentance is not even necessary. Priests, noble merchant, wife, young girls, young men, Hear your departed parents and your other friends crying to you from the bottom of the abyss. We are enduring horrible torments. 
a little alms would deliver us and you can give it and yet will not. At the very instance, continued Tetzel, when the piece of money chinks on the bottom of the strong box, the soul comes out of purgatory and set free, flies upward to heaven. And some of Luther's parishioners came to him with these letters. I have bought forgiveness. I would like you to absolve me, please. Luther, I would like to know what expression he had on his face when he learned this. That some of his own people believed that they could pay for the favor of God with money. He refused them absolution. He said, I will not forgive you until you have put your sin away. This indulgence, this letter you've received means nothing. And he continued to preach against this fallacy of attaining, attaining forgiveness by payment of money. And he thundered from the pulpit. And the people who had, were disappointed that Luther would not accept the indulgence angrily returned to Tetzel, told him that their confessor had denied his product. Tetzel became furious. He lighted fires in the public square saying, this is what's going to happen to whoever dares oppose the Pope's most holy indulgence. Martin Luther wrote a letter of protest to the Archbishop of Mainz, who was in Germany, protesting against this scandal. But he didn't know that this very man that he wrote the letter to was behind the whole thing. Here was Luther, a man who had paid everything he could. He had left the world, left his family, his friends, his standing. He had humbled himself, fasted, watched, prayed, scourged himself. He made the greatest sacrifice of all, his health. He never fully recovered from the effects of his life he led in that cloister. And he paid for it with his despair. And he realized that that would not work. There is no payment that God can accept to bring you into favor. And when he learned that people were being deceived into thinking that money, money of all things, could bring them into good standing with God, he could not stand it anymore. And he resolved to fight at any cost, and all cost, this evil that these men were bringing upon his church and the world. Luther thought of one other thing he could do to protest this abuse by Tetzel and others. The festival of all saints was approaching. This was a time when faithful Catholic Christians everywhere prayed for the deceased, uh, particularly for the, the saints, the official saints the ones who have really attained sainthood. And it's, it, this festival was in their honor. And just so you know, the, the night before was the eve of all saints. And a saint you can also call a hollow. Hollow. Like hallowed be your name means holy. Holy one is a saint. And so the night before all saints day is October 31, which is all hallows eve, which, becomes a, which is contracted to Halloween. So this is where Halloween came from. And before this, it was a Gaelic festival and there was witches. But this, this is the, the etymology of the word. This festival was approaching. And in Wittenberg, there was, um, at the castle church, many relics 
put up for display. And this is even more creepy. Relics are, are pieces of bodies of, of saints, like bones and parts of that. I don't know what other parts they might have that would preserve. But they have bones of saints everywhere. And people would get there and they'd get absolution. you get forgiveness of your sins. And Luther decided what he would do on the morning, noon, actually, of October 31, the eve of all saints. While the elector Frederick was relating the dream to his brother that I read at the beginning, Luther did not tell anybody, but he joined the crowd of pilgrims making their way to the church. And instead of going inside, he stopped beside the door, took out a piece of paper and a hammer, and he nailed a piece of paper. He nailed that thing to the church door. He declared to all those around that he would be ready at the university the next day to discuss, dispute these theses. The 95 theses is what they were called, protesting the sale of indulgences. Luther's students took the theses. First of all, nobody came to, to dispute with him, but everybody talked about it. But Luther's students took this paper and thanks to a recent invention by Gutenberg, took them and had them mass-produced. And he handed them like the leaves of autumn to the people. And the people who had come to Wittenberg for this festival, they came back to their countries and they brought the theses with them. And in a matter of weeks, Luther's theses and his name were all over Europe. He had never intended to enter this battlefield so large as he was about to embark upon and fight. But in doing what he did, he fulfilled the prediction of John Huss, and he fulfilled the dream of the Elector Frederick, who was later to be his protector. And the story will continue next time.